0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.CA Well hello citizens um, i'm Sam uh, I'm an elder here. I want to give a shout out to Harold for the water bottle stand. For those of you've seen me preach before, you know that this gets a lot of use, so it makes it a little bit easier. Um, as we as a church are looking forward to Christmas um, We're going through this uh, Jesse Advent tree book, and basically it's just going through uh, each day. It has this Old Testament, usually, um, passage, and we're looking at how it points to Jesus. And today, we've got the entire book of Ruth. So I got a whole book here, and I was thinking about having Adam just read it all, and I can give you like a five-minute sermon, Um, but I don't think he would have been too pumped. So uh, since this is a lot of text, I am not going to get through everything in the book, Um, Instead, I'm just going to narrow in on two of the main people, uh, Ruth, obviously, and then Boaz, and I'm going to see how they point to the Christmas story. So this takes place about 3,300 years ago, and the culture then is vastly, vastly different than ours today. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a place with really different culture, but the expectations and customs are really confusing if you're not used to them. Um... So a number of years ago, my parents took my family to Italy uh, for a trip and we were in a restaurant and my younger brother had to go to the uh, washroom. So this restaurant just had one of those, you know, single stalls and he was in there for a while and when he was done, he was looking for a way to flush the toilet and he couldn't find anything but there was this string in front of him. He figured, okay, I'll, I'll pull that. Turns out that was the emergency assistance alarm. It made quite a loud noise, and a number of the servers came running to the bathroom and trying to speak to him in Italian. He was very confused. He was very, like, embarrassed. Um, yeah, it was quite an interesting time. Um, but when you're in a different country, conventions and expectations are totally different. And with the Book of Ruth, we are the foreigners. This is the love story that takes place in a culture which has dramatically, a dramatic different view on dating and romance Marriage, obligations, children. We have to keep this in mind as we look at it, because this isn't a Hollywood love story. This isn't a notebook. Um, the actions taken here are going to feel weird to us, and I hope we can navigate through that and see what God intends for us to see through this story of Ruth and Boaz. So first, we'll look at Ruth and the amazing impact of devotion. We're introduced to Ruth right away, and she is destitute. Uh, chapter 1, starting here, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's count the score against Ruth here. First thing against her is she's married into a family, which just moved there and has no wealth, no work, or, sorry, no, no land, and now no patriarch who can work for them. And the second thing, the family that she married into, is that they're from an enemy country, okay? The Moabites and the Israelites did not get along. And so she was probably despised just because of the heritage of the family that she married into. And then she gets married, and she has no children, which in this time is the most important thing about a marriage. That's three. Then with all these unfortunate circumstances, her husband dies. That's four. And now, it's not like she just has herself to look after. She also has Naomi as her dependent. That's five. So, with all these things against her, Naomi assumes that Ruth is going to leave and start a new life without so many compounding hardships. Verse 11 here. Naomi said, "'Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way.' For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods Hardships already stacked on Ruth. Ruth doesn't back down. She is fiercely devoted to Naomi and to the God of Israel. Let's look at her commitment here, right? It says, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So I had a busy wedding year uh, between my wife and I. We had three siblings who got married, and I've heard a lot of vows. Um, When you listen to the traditional wedding vows— It's usually for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And look at what Ruth is saying here, right? This commitment is even stronger than your normal wedding vows. Until death do us part versus where you die, I will die. Ruth is saying that even when you're dead, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving your community or your family. And Ruth isn't doing this because it'll be easy or even beneficial for her. Ruth is going to be moving from Moab, her homeland, where all of her blood family are, to Israel. And it's not like someone from the USA moving up to Canada. These countries are bitter enemies to a level that we don't even have an equivalent in North America. The Moabites hated and feared the Israelites. The Israelites hated and feared the Moabites right back. Even King David, this is Ruth's great-grandson, who's part Moabite, in 2 Samuel 8, kills two-thirds of the Moabites he captures in battle. Despite all of this, though, knowing the challenges ahead, Ruth is devoted to God and committed to Naomi. She's an example to us in an age where commitment seems to be getting less and less common. We are hesitant to commit to anything. Obviously, committing to marriage is down, but also committing to friendships, committing to family, committing to churches are all becoming disappointingly rare. God gave us commitment for our good. Two-way commitment, where both parties are committed to one another, is a strictly positive thing. When you're committed to something, you're willing to ride out the lows. And when you know that you are willing to stick it out and that the other party is too, it forces you to work out your issues instead of just abandoning when you inevitably find issues. There's this whole litany of scientific research about the benefits of being committed. Universally, the research says that commitment is needed for successful relationships. Here's an academic, but well-worded summary of of this from the journal Family Theory and Review. It says, Because few relationships are continuously satisfying, a here-and-now focus would put great pressure on the current exchange of positives and negatives as a basis for evaluating the relationship. When confident that a relationship will persist into the future, an individual is more likely to behave in ways that do not always benefit the self immediately, but will enhance the long-term quality of the relationship. So, I want to challenge you. Are you scared of committing? Are you constantly reevaluating your options with a here and now focus, ready to move on when you think you see something better? Are you scared of committing to a friendship to actually find and spend time with people? Are you scared of committing to a relationship you aren't in, or are you not committing with the one that you are in right now? Are you scared of committing to a church to put your hand in and say, I am part of this, through better or worse, I'm going to remain committed? Are you scared of committing to God, of placing your trust, your energy, and your life into his hands? Ruth isn't. And as we work our way through the rest of the story, we'll just see how this commitment is working out for the good of not just her, not just Naomi, but even me and you today. So, Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Bethlehem, and they are super poor. So Ruth goes to work gleaning in the fields. So in the Old Testament, God laid out a very simple welfare plan for Israel's poor. You couldn't harvest your entire field, and you could only go through it once, so that any leftovers would go to the poor. So Ruth, as one of those poor people, goes and works hard collecting barley for her and Naomi. And her hard work and dedication impresses the landowner, Boaz. We're going to see three time frames— in which commitment and devotion can make changes. We're going to see short-term, long-term, and eternal timeframes. And at this point in the story, we already see some of the short-term impact of Ruth's devotion. In chapter 2, verse 10, Ruth asks Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answers her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that did not know you before. This is perhaps the most obvious, the most easy to see. When we're committed to something, and in particular when we stay committed through tough times, it is a witness and an encouragement to those who see it. I think about my grandpa. As my grandma was declining mentally, um, despite him not being a homemaker, not barely even knowing how to cook, He stuck with her and tried his best to learn how to make meals and try to make some of Grandma's breaking as he took care of her at home for many months before she died. He was committed to her, and that was something that really touched my entire family. And likewise, Ruth has made an impact on Boaz. Her devotion and self-sacrifice for Naomi leads Boaz to fall in love with her. And through chapter 3, the relationship between them grows. We also find that Boaz is a distant relative to Elimelech, and that according to Israelite tradition, the oldest living relative for a dead male with no children was to marry the widow in hopes of producing a descendant for the dead person. They called this the kinsman redeemer. And again, this culture is vastly different than ours. So as alien as this feels, this was looked at as the Israelites as a really honorable and beneficial thing, both for the dead and the widow. So the book finishes with Boaz redeeming Ruth from the clutches of poverty, and they begin a family. Now, this is a great story and shows a dramatic example of how commitment can transform your lives. However, this wouldn't be in the Bible if this is how it ended. You know, Ruth gets married to Boaz and they live happily ever after. The reason that this story is notable is because of the long-term impact of Ruth's devotion. A life lived of commitment to your family and your community can, and often does, have long-term impacts as your relationships transform. Have you ever watched a movie where they go back in time, like Back to the Future, and they're scared to do anything? Because they say, like, if they move this podium over here instead of over here, then, like, the chain of events would transpire that they wouldn't end up being born, right? Like, it's called the butterfly effect. We can look back at the past, and we can see how much the tiny things that we've done will have dramatically changed the present. But in the present, we don't get to see how much the things we do today affect the future. Let's take the story of Monica. Monica was a passionate Christian who found herself in a tough marriage to a guy who was not a fan of Christianity. But she was committed to God and committed to her husband, and when they had a boy, Monica hoped that she could raise him up to know God. But didn't go that way. As a teen, he fell into the wrong crowd, with his father encouraging it, and by the time he went off to university and moved away, he was off the deep end, partying heavily, sleeping around, and committing crimes. She was really discouraged by that, but she continued to pray for her family. Soon, her husband, after years of seeing her commitment to him, despite him being a deadbeat husband and father, became a Christian and then died shortly thereafter— And when her son came home from university, Monica then learned that he had converted to some kind of weird Buddhist Zoroastrian cult thing. And with nothing tiring her at home anymore, Monica decided to move to the city where her son was going to go work and helped with her grandson that her son had had with another girlfriend. They continued to move around with her son going in and out of relationships with her always showing the love of Christ to him. Shortly before Monica's death, she would see her son be converted to Christianity at the age of 31. Her passionate commitment to her family had ultimately won them over, but she still wouldn't get to see the full impact of her devotion in her lifetime. Her son, Augustine, would go on to be one of the most influential Christian theologians in all of the church's history. In his autobiography, Augustine writes a lot about his mom. And here's one of those passages. He says, She was also the servant of your servants. Whoever knew her, did in her much magnify, honor, and love you. For that, through the testimony of the fruits of a holy conversation, they perceived you to be present in her heart. For she had been the wife of one man, had repaid her parents, had guided her house piously, was well reported of for good works, had brought up children, as often laboring in birth of them as she saw them swerving from you. Lastly, to all of us, O Lord, Who, before her sleeping in you, lived associated together, having received the grace of your baptism, did she devote care as if she had been mother of us all, served us as if she had been child of all? And Monica's impact in the world, in a way, is similar to what we see from Ruth. Because this isn't just a fun love story. Out of this love comes a great grandson, David, who would grow up to be the king of Israel and one of the most impactful people in Israelite history and faith. If you've been around the church for a long period of time, you've probably heard Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The impact of commitment, of loving unconditionally and not giving up, oftentimes does result in things that we will never see. If Ruth had read Romans 8.28, at the start of this story, she would have no idea how this hardship and how she demonstrates her commitment would prove so impactful long after she was gone from the earth. But there's also an eternal perspective. Yes, there's also often earthly impact, but if we're committed to God, when we don't give up, when things get hard, when we aren't looking for alternatives that might fit our preferences, God promises us that this will be remembered in eternity. James 1:12 says, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him." Ruth had easier options; she could have stayed home, left Naomi, abandoned God. But by sticking with it, by showing her devotion to her family and her God, she becomes the paragon of a life lived committed. We see the short-term impacts on Boaz and Naomi, the long-term impacts on Israel through David, and the eternal impacts on all as an ancestor of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that this story takes place in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is Jesus' birthplace because it's David's birthplace. And it's David's birthplace because Ruth moves here with her mother-in-law. As you look towards Christmas, we see the echoes of Ruth's devotion in a manger just 1,300 years and a few footsteps away. <coughs> Jesus is interconnected with the whole story of Ruth. We see much of the positive attributes of Ruth reflected in him. Her commitment is a foreshadow of Jesus' commitment to us. Her self-sacrifice is a preview of what Jesus will do. But perhaps where Jesus is most seen in this story is actually through Boaz. Um, last week, Darcy showed us Zachariah's prophecy about Jesus, and this is the very first line of the prophecy. It says, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This redeeming, this being a redeemer, the main Old Testament example is Boaz. When Zachariah says that he's redeemed his people, the first person his fellow Jews are going to think of is Boaz. Really, that's what this book is about. He redeems Elimelech, Malon, Naomi, and Ruth in different ways. First, let's look at how Boaz redeems Malon and Elimelech. He's described as being related to Elimelech and as being his redeemer. What does redemption mean here? He's redeeming the bloodline of Elimelech by having a child with Ruth. Again, this is vastly different culture than ours today. Today, we don't really think a ton about bloodlines. Uh, In his time and place, though, bloodlines were your only legacy. Many people couldn't write, and if you did write, you would need people... in the future, to continue to transcribe your works again and again and again if it was going to be preserved. There was no pictures, there was no paintings of people. When you died, you were totally and completely gone, unless you had family. Again, different culture, but they thought that as soon as you had an heir, you had a legacy. You were perpetuated, and that was very meaningful to them. So unlike how we view it, where we'd say, this is like a super weird tradition with the dead husband's relatives marrying the wife. Um, this was viewed as a tremendous gift to the dead males. Melon and Elimelech, that Boaz would... Uh, sorry. To the dead males, Malon and Elimelech, that Boaz would marry Ruth and have a child with her. Boaz also redeems Naomi and Ruth. They were looking forward to a life of poverty, a life where they would be stuck begging and gleaning, unsure if they'd get enough food to live. Naomi was an old woman who had abandoned her people a number of years ago in a tough time, who probably couldn't physically work, and she was being supported by Ruth, a foreigner from a hated country with no ties to the area. Their life was going to be brutal. But Boaz redeems them from this misery. Culturally, this is very different from today. This was a patriarchal society where, as a woman, only a man could get you out of poverty. And I'm thankful that we live in a time where a woman can support herself. Conversely, though, we live in a time where we think we can get ourselves out of every problem. We can look at a story like Ruth's, and the first thing we think is, I'm sure glad I don't need a redeemer. So our culture is very divided, but if you look at one thing that everyone agrees on, it seems, it's the self-actualization, independence, individualism. The I-can-deal-with-it-myself mentality. And you can look at A left-wing argument, right? Everyone should be accepted for who they are, and it's our government's role to support them. You can look at a right-wing argument. The government should have no say in the choices an individual makes. But both are undergirded by the exact same thing, that as an individual, you should be the sole determiner of your life. Um, This sentiment is really captured well in the 1800s poem uh, Invictus. Uh, Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul." This is a total made-up lie. This lie that we control everything, that we are the captains of our soul, is a relatively recent and Western idea. If we just look at what sociologists uh, call individualism, we can see that Canada is like the darkest color on this map. The reality is that for most of human history, and even still to this day, most people haven't considered themselves the ultimate authority in their life. Some cultures have had their families and relationships determine the course of their life. Some cultures have been fatalistic and seen everything as their lives being predetermined by fate. Some cultures have seen that they're just a tiny cog and a massive machine, and they just need to keep spinning along with everyone else. We are the weird ones for being so prideful that we think we can do anything ourselves. Ruth had the humility to admit that she needed redeeming. In uh, chapter 3, verse 9, she asked Boaz to... Your, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. If you think that you are the master of your fate, if you think that you are the captain of your soul, I pray that God would humble you to make you realize that you need a redeemer. Because while Ruth was redeemed out of a life of poverty, we need redemption out of much more than that. We need redemption from the evil that is rooted deep within our personhood. She needed redemption from external circumstances. We need re- redemption from within. We need a redemption from a poverty of character which perpetually corrupts us until death do we pay for it. We are inescapably in need of Jesus' salvation from sin. If you think of yourself as the master of your fate, the captain of your soul, then you could look at baby Jesus in a nativity set and trivialize him. Why would you need a Redeemer if you can redeem yourself? But if you're introspective, if you're honest with yourself, you know that if you're the captain, then your boat is in the middle of the ocean. It's nighttime. It's stormy. Your engine is dead, and you're lost. You know that you need to call out to be rescued. And those calls won't be lost in the void. There is a God who visited us firstly in Bethlehem, who is called the Redeemer, who can save us from even the most disastrous of circumstances. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus coming to us in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Thank you for Jesus' ancestor Ruth and the amazing example of commitment she is to us. Thank you for Boaz, a picture of what redemption can look like, and I ask that we can be humble enough to receive it. Spread your wings over us, your servants, for you are a redeemer, God. Amen.